inspired by the brains behind the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Built by the brawn of Daryl Morey and yours truly, Jessica Gelman. And generously brought to you by our partners at Oracle. Live from our work from home studios to yours, we proudly bring you Trash Talking, a podcast designed to debunk and demystify the use of analytics in sports. We'll point out the dangers of using trash data in decision making. And in true baller style, We'll serve it up with good old fashioned trash talking and invite some of our best and brightest friends in sports, business, media, and tech to join the conversation. And now at five foot eight from Kager, also known as Kraft Analytics Group and MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Jessica Gelman. Also weighing in at just over 200 pounds with a full beard from the Philadelphia 76ers and the other MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference co-founder, Daryl Morey. In our eighth episode, we are thrilled to welcome Casey Wasserman, CEO and founder of Wasserman, a leading sports and entertainment agency. He is also the chairman of the LA 2028 Olympic Games. In 2020, Forbes named Wasserman the second most valuable sports agency in the world. Today, we'll discuss Casey's insights on COVID-19 and its effects on talent, the impact of analytics on sports, Wasserman's focus on diversity, and the 2028 Olympics in LA. We'll also talk about why Casey and Wasserman have sponsored the Sloan Conference since our inception 15 years ago. Casey, I'm not sure if you know this, but Wasserman is the only uh, sponsor that has been a sponsor for all 15 years of the conference. Did you know that? Uh, I did not know that officially, but I'm very proud of that. And, uh, you know, I guess the best part about that is uh, I can only have to subtract 15 years from my age to figure out when the first time I went was. <laughs> well, I think first we want to say thank you, of course. But the other component is clearly you were an early adopter of analytics because you you were taking a bet on a little known at then at that time assistant GM in Daryl Morey. Uh, and me, I, who knows what I was doing at that point in time. Um, but I think would love to actually get a little bit of your origin with respect to why analytics is important to you and then carrying it forward to today, where, how you are investing in it still at Wasserman. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's really interesting because for good or for bad, I'm kind of a black and white person and I I always have run our business and, and anything I've been involved in, which is, you know, um, if you can't agree on the facts, you can't make good decisions. Um, you know, you can disagree on what decision to make and that's okay. But if you can't agree on the facts, it's impossible to make a good decision in any direction. And so like, as I would tell you, if you ask my employees what, you know, I only have a few pet peeves. One of them is managing information and managing information is about managing facts. And so maybe my, I feel like my connectivity and, and, and belief of analytics is we just got to know what's going on. And if we know what's going on and smart people can make smart decisions, smart people can make dumb decisions, but you got to understand what's going on. And, and when it comes to representing, whether it's talent or brands or properties or advising people or working in the sports business, like we all work in, you know, it's it's a it, ironically at its core, sport is a is a is a is a product built on fact, right? I always tell people, what happens on the field is what happens on the field. You know, very rarely uh, 
do people get paid something more than more than they shouldn't get paid by an extraordinary amount or let like usually the market works and the market works because it's based on the facts and we've tried to run our business that way let's be transparent with our employees about what we're doing and what we're not doing and how we're doing what we're going to be better about let's be transparent we've always been clear with our clients like and the way i describe it is nobody can guarantee anything to a client except one thing that there is no space between their interests and ours. And having no space between your interests and ours means you have a singular common perspective on what is what is what are the situation. And then if you have a singular perspective on what the situation is, you can give them your advice. They don't have to take it. You don't have to take theirs. That's fine. And so I think that if you fast forward 15 years to today where research and insights has become not just a buzzword, the scale and size of the conference that you two have built, which you deserve a ton of credit for starting this 15 years ago, all the energy around people talking about it for me starts from a place where like i don't do well in the gray i don't do well with my kids in the gray and i don't do well in work with the gray if you tell me what it is i'm assuming you're telling me the truth and let us make decisions based on that and so we have always tried to take that our approach with our clients we have always tried to take that our approach um uh with our with our employees uh with an investor and i have found it to be really refreshing you know at, at our company every quarter we have an all company meeting every intern to me and we share the financials of the company for the quarter where we're doing against budget what's been working what hasn't been working and then talk about sort of one part of the business we've been doing that for six years not one time has it ever leaked in the press not that we would care but it hasn't leaked in the press and it has created a level of understanding about hey these people are, are telling us what's going on there's no no one's hiding anything from anybody and if you take that approach with your employees and you take that approach with your clients, I think it produces good result. And so now you fast forward to the world where everyone's talking about data and research and insights and measurement and all those things. And what we have done is look, everybody has it. As I tell people, you know, and I'm sure you've heard Elizabeth Lindsay say to you, you know, the world is drowning in data, but starving for insights, right? So I think is what makes Daryl, you know, one of the two or three best general managers in basketball. Yes. Everybody now has analytics, right? That used to be his competitive advantage. But now what he has on top of that is the insights to produce a winning team based on that analytics. We all have data. I think our value proposition in our business and why we've structured our business in the research space and why we approach our clients this way is to use, that data is not, a, is not the end product. It's a means to an end to deliver insights based on the data to give good advice based on having no space between our interest and theirs print that and put it on the home page that was the best that's the best i've ever heard someone someone say it um can i can can i ask how you've brought that approach to the olympics yeah sure so you know the the one thing we have tried to do is, again is with with the olympics both in planning for uh the bid which is uh and 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 now executing is just to be authentic so when we were bidding you know we i and the mayor and i used to laugh about it like Here's who we are. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Like when we put our bid in for the Olympics, you know, we put our bid in for the city that existed at that day, not some city that we thought might exist in 2024 at that time or 2028. You know, we were, have been transparent about our financials. We have been clear about what we're spending money on. We have been clear about what we think the business opportunity is that we're not trying to manage people's perspective. And now when it comes to operating Daryl, you know, when we engage with the IOC, you know, we sit down with them and say, hey, look, you guys, uh, yes, the Olympics has grown to a place that is at a scale that's hard to comprehend. 
But, you know, I'm commercial by nature, as, as you both know. So let's, well, what I've said to the IOC is, can we take a commercial approach to this? Like, here's how much it costs to operate and deliver a sport in the Olympics. And here's the maximum revenue you can generate. Can we focus on the ones that are out of whack and create a different paradigm? That's taking data and producing a better result. You know, in our work with NBC, as we think about the Olympic schedule for 2020, the competition schedule, let's create a competition schedule that maximizes the opportunity for the international federations, for the athletes, for, you know, for, for the networks, for the partners, for the fans of LA. So that means taking that data, understanding what it means, and, and then making a different result. So crazy example, which no one, I never would have even thought about, you know, I never forget there's an IOC member and he's, he was a gold medalist. Now he's an IOC member in the Federation. And, and, and I sat down to have breakfast and I will never forget this. And the first question he asked me, you know, I was ready to talk about LA and Hollywood and all this cool stuff. First question he asked me is what time are the finals of badminton going to be in Los Angeles? And I was like, what? I, I, I like, are you kidding me? What? And I said, I don't understand. He goes, badminton is the most, one of the most important sports in China. If our final isn't in Los Angeles when it's on prime time in China, you don't have my vote. So now take that to an event that has 17,500 athletes and 28 sports federations and 15 million visitors in 30 days. And, and opposed to just doing it the way it was, you know, swimming starts on X day and let's manage that. Let's take that data. So we can make sure every seat is filled. So we make sure that the countries that matter for the, some of those sports that may not matter as much in the U.S. matter. Let's program, you know, hey, if there's a judo competition that may not be the most popular, let's put a USA basketball game right next to it so that we get people in the building, in the, in, in the, in the area, if you will. So let's take this data and actually create a better result from it as opposed to, uh, you know, taking the data and then doing something else. I, I never forget Indra Nui, who has been a, a, an incredible friend and mentor to me. We were in a meeting together one time and she said, here's the, here's the problem with data. <laughs> Listening to data means you have to throw out the age old rule, which says that the highest person, the highest paid person in the room gets to make the decisions. And that's a hard thing for leaders to accept. But that's what most organizations run. They talk about the data and then the CEO says, yeah, okay, we're gonna do this. And it's as though the data doesn't matter. And so you can't have it both ways. And, and it's been a really eye-opening experience. And by the way, it doesn't mean I'm perfect at it. It doesn't mean it's not hard sometimes to say like, mm, I really would have done something different, but the data is pointing this way. I'm sure Daryl has those moments when he looks at his team and he goes, God, but I love this guy. And you know, the data is like, the guy can't shoot threes when he's guarded by so-and-so in his own defense. All of a sudden, you know what? Maybe that guy shouldn't be on the court at this moment in time. And that's hard to accept, but it's a, it's a paradigm shift. It doesn't mean you don't still have instincts and intuition and all those things. But in the end, that data has to be at the core of how you think about your, your business, whatever it is. I love this concept of having the right product, in this case, for the Olympics, the sport that is on at the right time for that part of the country. I mean, we, they just announced yesterday uh, around when they're gonna show the Tokyo opening ceremonies. And so the fact that you're having those conversations, it's so top of mind and that you're thinking like that, and is, it's just really a great application of, of data, as you said. And this concept, <laughs> we talk a lot about how much information there is now and I want to go back to Wasserman for a second and just like specifically right now 
and we'll get to COVID in a second, but right now, where are you guys investing across all the different parts of your business to really bring analytics to the forefront and create those insights as you alluded to on the talent management side, on the branding side, all those different areas? Yeah, I would tell you, so today maybe as it's a transition period for the last few years, analytics, research and insights, call it what a measurement, whatever you want to call it, has been a thing, like in it's a separate thing. And the truth is it can't be a separate thing anymore. It has to be part of everything. So, you know, if we represent a player uh, in free agency in Major League Baseball, we know the, the scale and quantity of analytics that the teams are going to use in that negotiation. As we like to describe it, we have to be the 31st baseball team. We have to be the 31st NBA team because that's the only way to understand, and by the way, that's not about, well, no one's taking advantage of anybody, but that's, you know, that's, we know how they're thinking about their team and their business. It's incumbent upon us to represent a, a player to have that same level of understanding. By the way, it's why over the last three years, I believe our arbitration record when we've gone to cases is like 15 and one. You know, we've lost one arbitration case and our competitors, the most famous baseball agent in the world is like, oh, and six, like, because we do the work, we understand the data, we put in the effort, we put in the time. And if you do that in every case, I never forget when we talked about, by the way, forget about negotiations, picking the right place for somebody. I've seen Daryl make free agent presentations and it's not like, here's how rich our owner is or here's how nice our arena is. It's like, here's the pieces of the puzzle we have. Here's the opportunities I have in the future to put the right team in place for you to succeed. So I never forget, we represent you, Darvish, who's a, a pitcher. And when, and when you was going to free agency, we looked at, we, we, we did literally analyze every pitch he's ever thrown in every building against kind of batters, in weather, all those things so that he could make a decision based on the data, what the kind of place he needed to be, what kind of team he needed to be on, so that when he went to do that, he was gonna get paid, but he was at the right team getting paid, not a team that paid him, that a year later he was like, whoops, does not really want to be because I can't be successful. And I'm sure Daryl sees it all the time in the basketball. And, and Jess, I'm sure you see it the way the Patriots run their business is like right people in the right place. And that's a data-driven thing. That's not a division. That's that's part of our approach. And on the brand side, you cannot tell a brand to spend money based on a strategy you've recommended. You can't tell a brand how valuable experiential marketing is. You can't tell a brand how to leverage social media if you can if you can't then defend and support that advice and that perspective. And so it's integrated into our into what we do for our clients as opposed to a separate thing we try and sell our clients. Yes, there are some people who we only do sort of measurement for uh, or, or, or sort of the research and insights business, but for our core clients where we're giving them broad-based advice on how to spend their money, shame on us if we're not holding ourselves accountable for the money we're telling them to spend. One question, Casey, is you guys do some the best work I've seen in terms of your clients trying to find that fit, like you said, which is not just the money, but the money and the organization. I've always thought it would be hard for agencies to factor in trades, though, because sometimes teams will make that pitch and then there's a trade and sort of the best laid plans are thrown out. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's it's the practical reality of the business we we all operate in, which is you know you, uh, as my grandfather used to say, I I can't predict the future, and I'm even worse at making excuses, so I don't try. 
And, and that's the truth. You know, our job at that time is to give the client the best advice. Just like when you're signing a player, you don't sign the player because a year and a half from now, you're something, someone got injured and you realize you got to trade the player. You sign the player because at that moment in time, you think that's the best decision for your ball club. And I think we just have to all, you know, own that. And, and again, this comes back to the other piece of, of sort of data and measurement is it's also just being really honest and transparent. Hey, we screwed up. We, the agent screwed up. Hey, we, the team screwed up. We thought this was going to work. It didn't. Let's create a better solution for everybody. And you can't predict that. You can't manage for that. But if you have an honest, transparent relationship, I think you can create positivity out of that. And, and that ultimately is the key. But trying to predict where those, you know, it's crazy stuff happens. And, and, you know, look, your job is to put the best team on the court every night to win a championship in Philadelphia. And our job is to put our players in a position to be in a place that allows them to be successful. And we are all trying to do that from the most honest and straight perspective. And that doesn't mean it always works. <laughs> it's interesting. We've had two, two conversations specifically on the, the player development side. Uh, Andrew Friedman came on our podcast um, most recently, and he talked about the individualization that they've been doing as people are coming into their organization. So very valuable work there, obviously. Separately, Jonathan Kraft, he spoke about the player health data and the information and the challenges there. So it would just be interesting to get your perspective. You obviously talked about how you're using that individualized information to help kind of guide your talent to the right location. But where do you, I mean, I'm giving you a couple, couple of examples of potential big opportunities around analytics on, the, on that side. Like, what are you seeing there? Well, I think we're all still in the really, really early days of player health and wellness uh, and using the data to produce better results. You know, um, today it gets categorized probably best as like something like load management or that kind of conversation. But it's so much deeper than that. You know, it's it's mental health, it's sleep, it's nutrition, it's travel. It's all the stuff that comes into your health and wellness, it, it, not just as an athlete, but as human beings, that truly isn't optimized. I mean, you know, I think, um, look, if I owned an NFL team and my payroll was $200 million, I wouldn't have the same four athletic trainers or the same four strength and conditioning coaches I've had for 20 years, right? I mean, I, I've told owners, I'd have a strength and conditioning coach for every position because the needs and the desires are, are and, the, and the things that are important are so fundamentally different. I would make sure I know every piece of food that goes in every player's mouth every day forever, as long as they're my responsibility. You know, all that stuff, you know, I mean, in, in life, prevention is way better than fixing things. So be ahead of the curve. And I think for the amount of money spent on arenas and facilities and players, if you compare that to the amount of money spent on health and wellness, it's grossly inadequate, I would argue. Uh, some teams better than others. But, you know, I know in your in Europe and Daryl knows this because he's sort of gone and studied the best of the best European soccer clubs. When they go on the road, they take their own chef. They don't let anybody in the kitchen cook their food like they don't mess around. Like it is full lockdown. And, you know, we have NBA teams. Yeah, go out, to, you know, go out to Mastro's for dinner or go have a glass of wine. Like, whoa, like, guess what? You lose that one game. You don't make the play like you can, you, you know, so I think health and wellness, there is a ton of room to go. Uh, it's obviously complicated. There's obviously legal pieces to it, but that to me, there's a ton 
to go. Um, and on the player development side, I, I think it's actually, I, I think teams and do a really good job. They identify the, the traits that they are, are important to them. I've heard Jonathan talk, Jonathan Kraft talk a lot about, they don't just look at the best players. They look at the best players for what they need that fits the way they like to play football. And by the way, I would tell you, their level of consistency over 20 years has validated that better than maybe any team in the history of professional sports. Because football is such a hard sport to maintain that excellence. Not that other sports aren't hard. That sport is really hard. Yes, they had the greatest quarterback of all time. But even with that, they still maintained a level of consistency that is is really staggering. And so, you know, I think that that is a, a, because that really just ties to the sort of analytics and the understanding of what makes players work and not. And then I would tell you the last piece I think is the maybe the most under explored is 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 the mental piece you know the eq piece um when i hire people i always tell people sort of my philosophy in hiring employees that you know competency is not something you can cover up right like any whether like if a guy can't play basketball you know that obviously pretty quickly if someone can't be an executive for my company they don't have the skill set that reveals itself pretty quickly the personality stuff people can cover that up for a long time and that's the stuff when we talk about culture what we're talking about is how are the individual personalities working together to create a success together, whether that's in a company or a basketball court. And that's all about understanding what human, what makes, we're all human beings. We all have our anxieties and our fears and our issues and our insecurities and the things that get in our way. And how do we get a better understanding of those things and then put them together with a group of people who complement and support and fill in the needs that they don't have and vice versa. And that I think there will be a lot more development on too. Casey, recently there's been a lot of tension on this player development front in terms of you have a lot of clients that are super successful, have their sort of own teams of people. And at the same time, the organizations, and many of them are well run, have also their team. And it's that integration. How do you help your clients sort of balance that that issue? I mean, that's obviously, that's a, that's a really really difficult issue you know if joel Embiid has a as a physical therapist who's given the injuries he's had that makes him feel comfortable hard for you to tell him not to use that person and at the same time hard to tell your team of experts at the sixers that they're not can't touch their best player like it's this it's a complicated thing i don't know that there's a good answer um you know obviously the best result is to have those people communicating and coordinating if they're going to have differences so that the the the, the path the individual is on is aligned with the path the team is on. Um, and that's the best case scenario in a situation that, that you are right to point out is complicated at best. And I'm not sure for, as you know, for superstar athletes, <laughs> I mean, let's just talk about Tom Brady. I, you know, he's got his guy who does what he wants with him and who, no one is going to tell him not to do that. And I don't, I don't know how you would handle that in any regard other than letting him do what he wants to do. It's tricky if they're if they're very good and you can pull them into the org. That's been like the best solution, but that's also not often possible. Those those folks are independent for a reason, you know that kind Correct. of thing. Correct. Correct, and that's the challenge. And it's it's one of those things that is going to continue to be complicated in certain situations, no question. So we're going to switch switch up topics a little bit, Casey. And obviously, it's been a tumultuous year with COVID-19 and sports has obviously been uniquely affected by it. So 
I think a couple thoughts from you on how you see it impacting sports and that's all aspects of it. And then at the same time, how will sports impact how we get through this going forward? Just to get your perspective on this. Yeah, look, the, the impacts of COVID have obviously been uh, uh, sort of all encompassing in every business. Um, sports is unique. It then is, it is one of the few things that people consume um, that the most important driver is television, not in person, relatively speaking. Not that the in-person revenue or experience aren't special because they are, but as we have proven over the last 12 months, that if you can just get sports on TV, no matter how painful it is, it's less painful than the alternative. And if you have any questions, look at the music business or the entertainment business. Not doing it is way worse than doing it a little bit. And sports has been fortunate that it's been able to figure out through unbelievable efforts by all the leagues to put a product on the on the field, on the court. And, and they have done an incredible job of that. The economic impact is, is both devastating and staggering for the teams, but it is maintained its position in the in the sort of the in the market of importance and connectivity because there's no you know obviously in the concert business there are no replacements for not having a concert in television there are reruns you could figure out how to shoot a movie and get it on tv you know there's some if there's no sports there are no sports there there's it's it's binary it's all or nothing and all or nothing is on tv and experienced or not and so the leagues have done an incredible job of figuring out how to get it on TV. And you watch that Super Bowl on Sunday this past weekend. Okay. Yeah, the there were cardboard cutouts in the stands, but you know what? I felt like I was watching the Super Bowl. And I, was it perfect? No. If you dropped me out of outer space and I watched the game, I said, yeah, I'm watching the Super Bowl. This is great. And sports has done a really good job of that. The economic impact will be both meaningful, but I do think short term, it will take a few years to work this through the system in every league, there will be adjustments to the the structures of the leagues going forward to manage for the losses that have happened over the 12 months. And that's both expected and appropriate. Um, the flip side is, you know, sports is one of the few things in the world that brings people together. Um, and when we can you know, when we can get people back full tilt in stadiums, that experience will probably be more special than we ever appreciated. Uh, I've gone to a few sporting events over the last 12 months, and I've sat in a football stadium with 20 people. It's a weird thing. It is not that, you know, when you're there, it's not the same. There is no replacement for that energy, you know. Uh, and so I think we are all by by nature social and want to the reason sports brings people together because it's a shared passion around a common thing. Very few things have that, right? And and sports has that in a way that's so unique because it's embedded in our communities, it's embedded in our families, it's embedded in our culture. And and the and the power of that is what makes sports valuable, but it's also what makes sports meaningful. And and the opportunity to experience that as a community together, I think has never been needed more now than ever. I'm so glad you're the point person for LA 2028 because I feel inspired. I'm being serious. I've, I mean, truly, I think that's it's I had not thought about that connection to what is happening in the music and concert business and that it's just a really it's a great perspective.
Speaking of the Super Bowl, well, no, because I mean, you brought it up. So how brands actually presented themselves at the Super Bowl with ads, was there, I mean, there was a great Olympics ad, obviously, but was there, was there any brand that you thought, this is so different, it's because of COVID, or that this was super sharp, um, that resonated for you? It's funny, and I'm not saying this because of my job with LA28, but I thought the Toyota ad about the Paralympics was, I mean, the one I wrote was the most impact on me. I mean, I just as sitting there with my kids watching the game, like that's the one I was like, whoa, you know, it's it's a Toyota ad. By the way, the game's not on NBC, so it's not like they, they had that ad buy built into their NBC relationship. This was, they went intentionally and they chose to promote that. That was pretty powerful to me. You know, I feel like it's one of those Super Bowl ads have become one of those things, you know, where disappointment is a function of expectation. You know, we have, our expectations are so out of whack for the insanity of what a Super Bowl ad's going to be that now just a good ad is like, you know, not that exciting. And I felt relatively blase about most of the ads, frankly. Um, and I think people were concerned. Do do they strike a heavy tone in an environment that's not really heavy, right? I mean, during a Super Bowl game is not a heavy environment, not that the not the world we're in is heavy, but that those three hours are not. Do they strike a comedic tone, which may not also feel appropriate given the world that we're living in? Like it was, I think people, the sense I took away from the ads you saw was they had a hard time trying to figure out what to say or how to say it, you know? And, you know, in, in when times are dark or, or struggling and, you know, even, I, they're not, there may not be a bigger Bruce Springsteen fan than me, but even his Jeep ad felt a little artificial to me. And so I, I don't know, it just, it felt off the ads, not that they were bad, just nothing great. And I, I almost wish someone had just gone and said, you know what, we're just gonna, you know, the world is really screwed up right now. We're gonna have fun with this ad because someone needs to laugh or someone needs to think we're crazy or so whatever it is. And I thought that could have been a powerful opportunity. Um, and I think people just sort of played it safe. I agree on the Paralympic ad. I mean, it was emotional. And also, kind of back to your earlier co comment, it connected that passion of sports and really bridged what is happening. It, it was inspiring. So that makes sense. Um, and one other kind of topic on the business side, I guess we'll have for, for something that I've been really inspired by that, that you, you've been leading is Wasserman's specific focus on women's sports and what you launched in 2019 with the collective. Again, you have a very analytic slant to it, but would just love your perspective on what you're seeing and why you are really investing in this space. And I do think you're ahead of the curve on this. I mean, you definitely were, but why now and why this? So, <clears throat> You know, what I'm most proud of is, is around the collective is two things. One, uh, it's an idea that was generated by our team and my job was really easy and I got to say yes. Um, and that, that makes me feel good about the organization we have that people feel comfortable and there's opportunities for them to come up with really interesting, different kind of ideas based on skill sets or opportunities they see and bring them to me. And, and my job was easy to say yes. The other thing that I even feel better about is we have been heavily invested and committed to women's sports for 15 years. Uh, this is, it's not like we woke up in 2019 and said, oh, this would be cool to invest in women's sports. Let's go announce something and go figure out how to be in the women's sports business. It's the opposite. We already represented hundreds of the greatest women athletes in the world. And the reason we were invested in that very specifically 
is because I have always said, you cannot be in the sports business and ignore half the world, period. So we have an incredible team of women and men agents representing what is without question the best group, not everyone, but the best group of female athletes on earth across all sports because it is the right thing to do for us as a company for what we stand for. With what has happened in the last few years, it has turned into an, a, a much bigger business opportunity than I think we ever anticipated. And if it never did, we wouldn't have stopped doing it for a second because we haven't stopped doing it for a second. And what you're seeing now is that that we had an opportunity, what we saw in 2019 or what our team saw in 2019 was we had the opportunity to, to take that investment we've made, to take this understanding of consumers through representing the brands we represent and to say, look, you know, you can't speak to females the way you speak to males. You can't think about marketing female athletes the way you think about male athletes. You know, the Philadelphia 76ers can't sell tickets to moms the way they sell tickets to dads, right? It's not about buying a beer and having hot dogs. It's something else. And brands need to think about the way they engage with the, the incredible female athletes we represent around the world, about how to use them to talk about their stories. And so the collective, uh, which is what we call the, the enterprise, was a way to bring all that talent, all that understanding, all that knowledge, and all that reach to do two things, to create more opportunities for our clients and to be better for ourselves on behalf of our clients. And, and you know, what you have seen come out of that, which is, you know, now every company, and we've had one for a long time, you know, diversity and equ equity and inclusion, you know, councils. And they're doing that to, I think, in many ways, to, to satisfy the needs of people sort of describing how many um, boxes you can check on who works in your company. Our approach is very different, and it's why we represent female athletes. It's why we have a really diverse company that we're incredibly proud of. Diversity of thought is how you get to the best answer. And the only way to have diversity of thought is to have diversity of perspective and background and gender and identity and race and geography, you cannot have diversity of thought if everyone looks like me. A bunch of 46-year-old white Jewish dudes sitting around a table, we're all going to think the same way. I am the only 46-year-old white Jewish dude at the table because that's the only way we can have the different inputs to produce the best output. And that's why we do what we do the way we do it. I'm not saying we're better than anybody else. I'm not saying we're perfect. And I'm not saying we can't be a lot better. But we take the approach that if you really believe that your job is to serve your client's best interest, shame on us if we don't have a diverse set of people to provide that perspective. Well, and I think, Casey, just on that line, just to summarize, with the stuff that you guys are doing at Sloan this year, you know, you're Wasserman sponsoring our women's luncheon. We're initiating a mentor mentorship program directed towards DEI. Uh, that Wasserman's also sponsoring. And I mean, you guys are just bringing that not only to what, how you're managing, but driving it across the sports industry. So I, I think it's really meaningful and, and profound. And your team is seeing it and feeling it too. So it's well, awesome. And I appreciate that. And by the way, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, this is not about me, right? This is about an incredibly talented group of people who are doing really great work. And, and it's about me giving them every opportunity to continue to do that and to push. And, 
you know, it's kind of like the data conversation. If it's me making the decisions and about me, we've already lost. If I'm, if I'm the one who says, yeah, the data says that, but I want to do this, we've already lost. What have been the data trends around women's sports? One thing we've learned while doing these podcasts together is that, you know, some of the data and analytics around women's sports is sort of lagging and, and behind. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you seeing? Yeah, I think that's fair, be, uh, fair, a, fair, a fair assessment in the sense that I just think that's a function of the economics, you know, uh, uh, the payroll of your team versus the payroll of the WNBA team, which translates to the investment in every piece of that business health and wellness, travel, like you're flying on charters, they're flying commercial, like just go down the list. So the investment in analytics, um, you know, now we, we take a, we have the approach that we leverage our scale as a company in basketball to serve Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird and Diana Tarazi and go down the list uh, of, of the best, of the best and most talented athletes uh, in the world. And, and so we try and leverage that. But I think a lot of that's a function as women's sports continues to grow both economically and, and, and uh, in stature as it should and as it will, those investments will come along. The good thing is you don't have to recreate the wheel. They play soccer or football, they play tennis, they play hockey, they play basketball. You know, and so we gotta, we gotta just leverage the infrastructure and get people to understand it as opposed to see, treating it or thinking about it as a sideshow. Yeah, we saw that where a lot of the tools for women's uh, sports, you can just take the off-the-shelf stuff for men's sports and do pretty well, uh, obviously, with some customization. So. No question. So another hot topic on the that's come up on through this through the podcast has been uh, Bill James and Andrew Freeman and Sue Bird. They all talked have all talked about some of the challenges of being able to kind of see talent, scout talent, as well as practice their craft. And so kind of just wondering generally, how have you been helping support your athletes during this time? I mean, Bill James in particular was like, we can't, you can't even see the players right now. It's, it's like a lost year. It is. It's, it's hard. It's, it's the, it's the, and, and I don't think we'll feel the full effects of all of it for a long, you know, think about college sports. You're going to see the impact of the college sports, both competitive dislocation and economic dislocation. My concern is you're going to see that in 2028. College sports trains America's Olympians. The lost year, the decimation of Olympic sports will damage 2028's American Olympic team. No different than, you know, you know, I, I don't know how you would judge a, a college. But if I'm Daryl, I don't know how I judge a college basketball season this year. Well, who, who, you, you know, I mean, I went to UCLA. I live in LA. I'm obviously not going to games. I can't barely find a game on TV. Daryl can't sit there. Like, I don't know. Are you going to draft someone based on what they did on TV? I, yes, you're going to have to. But it's it's a different world, right? Whether it's the G League or or even in Euro League and all the stuff. So it's there's going to be real implications for it. I don't think we. By the way, no different than my. 18 year old son who claims he's going to school every day. Like, yes, he's probably technically going to school every day on his iPad, but I'm not so sure what he's learning and what he's doing and then what the long-term effects gonna be. And I don't think any of us can possibly, possibly understand that, but I can tell you that the effects are real and, and it makes everybody's job a little bit harder. Um, you know, if, 
if if judging talent on TV was all you had to do, Daryl would have a bunch of scouts sitting with him in Philly, and no one would be traveling around the country. And Daryl wouldn't go spend the time in Europe finding those hidden gems that he has been so good at doing playing overseas. Then he just, you know, someone would send us a videotape. So oh, yeah, that guy looks good. Let's grab, you know, but there's so much more to it, right? What, who's the kid? What are his parents like? Where did he grow up? How does he behave with his teammates? What did he do after the game? What's he like in practice? How hard is he working? Talking to coaches, talking to friends. Like, and so I just think there are going to be some real implications for this. And I don't know if any of us are smart enough to figure out exactly what they're going to be, but it would be naive to think that there aren't. Well, there'll be more uncertainty, which actually creates opportunity, which is at least from, you know, like for teams that pick later and things like that, I think it's a positive generally. I, I had one question on the agent side, like how much how much do you guys use um, data and analysis to find players like we do to, to pull them into the Wasserman fold? A lot. Uh, a lot. Um, some sports more than others, as you might imagine. Uh, sports like basketball and baseball that are heavily driven by data analytics. Football, there's a much less common analytical basis from which to operate. Um, but a lot, you know, our baseball team, I, I will tell you, uh, six years ago, we had a baseball business that was huge or maybe a little longer than that, but had a bunch of gigantic contracts running off from big time players. And they made a very conscious decision to take a very analytical approach to the kind of players they were going to sign and very importantly to the kind of players they weren't going to sign. And we wake up today and I, and we, I think we were, well, we definitely represent two of the four highest paid players in the history of the game in Giancarlo Stanton and Nolan Arenado. We represent uh, an inc more all-stars than any other agency. And, and that's because of the time and the effort they put into taking that analytical approach and being disciplined in executing it. Uh, basketball, probably a little bit behind that, but catching up quickly, you know, a uh, good example, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the fun thing that every uh, website likes to do is go redraft old drafts. So, you know, look, take a kid who, who went, I think 12th to Oklahoma city, Shea Alexander, who we represent. You know, our guys really believed in him as a basketball player based on a lot of insights and understanding. If you redrafted today, he'd probably be, I mean, you tell me, a top three pick from that draft, you know? And that's how you, when you pick at the end of every round, get you find those hidden gems because you know what works. That's why the Patriots who never pick at the front of a draft know what works for them and make those decisions based on their understanding and sticking true to, to, to their beliefs. You, you guys have been sort of ahead, not only have you had your agents stolen to win multiple world championships in Bob Myers, you've done a good job pulling in uh, people from teams who are at the front front of this, like Jason Rainey. So it's just an interesting trend I've been watching you guys do. Yeah, look, it's, it's important. We've got a guy, George David, who you know, who was, uh, you know, assistant GM in Detroit and spent a lot of time in Europe. Like, it's not about just hiring agents to represent a dozen basketball players. It's about having a team of people who support those agents, whether it's on basketball, whether it's on training, whether it's on, you know, legal and social media stuff. But, you know, we are in the business of representing basketball players. So if we just have basketball agents representing basketball players and don't have people with other basketball insights and knowledge and understanding, whether it's the way teams think, the way they operate, the economics, the structure of deals, all that stuff, 
then we're not doing our best job as an agent and, and, and we'll continue to push the boundaries on that. All right. So we're going to have one final question and then we're going to play a game, Casey. Um, I think that the big thing here is really around where you see the biggest opportunity in analytics on a go forward basis. You know, I think the biggest, forget about my business, I think the biggest commercial opportunity is how this analytics starts to tie into how consumers engage with the sports. So whether that's in-person, um, fantasy, gambling, video games, all of this data is, is, is applicable, common, and interesting. And what I think makes sports really valuable is that, that data is a really cool core connectivity to enhance the engagement. And so that's going to happen in a ton of different ways. You know, how Daryl uses data, how we use data at Wasserman, that's fine. And that's good. That's just not that interesting to most of the world. But, you know, sitting in an arena, you know, I, I have played with some of the NBA broadcasts that later on the second spectrum stuff where you can see the, you know, when the guy has the ball, the shot percentage. And it's still a little wonky and still a little behind real time. And, you know, it's fine. But that's going to come quickly. And that's going to be really cool. And that's going to help the casual fan become an avid fan and the non-fan become a casual fan. And it's going to help people understand why and how and where. And that context, which is what we all do for a living and makes us so passionate, I think will increase the passion. And so how do you make that data accessible, engaging to the, to the broadest base of consumers in all iterations is a massive, I mean, I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know, but is a massive opportunity and will have significant results across the entire spectrum. I personally find the other side of the data very, very interesting <laughs> and agree that engagement of the fan is super critical. Um, you know, it's kind of just what, what I like to do. So uh, we have a whole business around it. So, so I've heard. Uh, so, do, so, I've heard. So, do, so, do, so do you, Casey. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move into what we call game time. And this we'll just have a couple of these, Casey. Um, so it's our version of Kiss, Date, Mary, And we're going to ask you to bench trade or tag like franchise tag okay here we go so makes sense all right okay casey bench trade or tag most impactful sponsorship athlete james harden megan rapino john Carlos stanton impactful oh you have to say you have to say why impactful impactful megan rapino because she became a cultural zeitgeist in maybe one of the most politically charged important times in this country history and has maintained that relevance, that is, it is hard to compare to the impact that she has had and has and will continue to have given who she is, what she achieved and how she handled it. So you're tagging her. I'm definitely tagging Megan. I have to bench and trade. Oh, I have to do the other ones too? I don't just get yeah. to pick one? No. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> um, well, look. Uh, well, I would. I, I, well, you, know, you asked me three clients, so I'm not sure I can answer that with the other two. That's I'm, fair. I'm tagging all three. Don't owners get to do crazy stuff? So I just doing. Oh yeah, stuff. no. You, I, okay. A Andrew Friedman was just like, I'm not answering that question. You, okay. you correct. <laughs> you you 
you uh, you passed the test, Casey, of owning <laughs> okay. an agency. Well done. Okay, good. I know who my clients are. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, summer Olympics. That your favorite Summer Olympics: uh, Athens, two thousand four, London, two thousand twelve, or Sydney, two thousand. Uh, definitely tagging, um, uh, tagging London. Uh, I think it brought in many ways, you know, they just, they just executed in an incredible way. They, they captivated that country. They, they shared their passion with the world. They were an incredible host and Sebco is a mentor and a dear friend who, had my job with 2012 and, and, you know, he, he set a new standard for hosting an Olympic games. You would have to say bench, um, is bench or trade worse, by the way, which is, which is worse for someone. Trade, 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 is, worse. Oh, we're, trade we're, is the worst. Yeah. Okay. Then we're, we're trading, we're trading Athens. Uh, you know, um, the, the unfortunate legacy of Athens financially and, and culturally has not been great. Um, probably a project, for all the right reasons that went there in terms of the, the, the romantic perspective of going back to Athens probably was a project they should have passed on. And so I'll trade them. And I don't bend Sydney for anything. I think Sydney did an incredible job. I just don't think com relative to, to, to London, um, London to me set a really new standard. All right. Last one, Casey, the, which, which sports current rules we've done this with, uh, some leading lights. So this is a tough, Tough question. We've done this with Bill James, Nate Silver, others. Which, which of the three sports have the best set of rules? Baseball, soccer, uh, American football. Oh, the best set of rules. Oof. Uh, <laughs> um, I would actually say I would tag soccer because I actually think their rules are super simple and the least invasive in the sport. And I would trade baseball because I think they get stuck in their history and haven't evolved the game in the way they need to. And they really need to evolve the, they get stuck being beholden to the rules. And I, and I, I wish, and I, by the way, not that they don't want to, it's just hard to move the sport through it. Um, uh, to evolve the sport in a way to connect with this a new generation of the way people experience sports and bench the NFL only because if someone can explain to me what it can, can explain to me what an, actually a catch is, um, you know, they get benched until I can understand what a catch is. Well, I love the, to your point case, I loved in baseball, they, they formed a commission for like four years to, to modify the rules. And they came out with one rule change, which is that you can just let the guy go to first base instead of throw four pitches. Of the hundreds of rules they, they considered. Exactly. Need I say more? All right. Well, Casey, thank you so much for your time. And congratulations on what you've built. And thank you so much for your ongoing support of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference and what you guys are, are doing this year around the conference. Um, it's having the fellowships for, for DEI is gonna be huge. And we're just thrilled to, to be uh, a partner with you guys. Well, it's our, our pleasure to continue to uh, support all the incredible work you do. I'm lucky to call you both friends and uh, 
my annual attendance when we can be in person uh, is as close as this uh, public school kid from LA is getting to MIT. So I feel myself, at least for a couple of days a year, I feel a little bit smarter. <laughs> Thank you, Casey. That was awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Casey. Take care. Post-game huddle. I learned a lot talking to Casey. The first, I'm going to steal a bunch of his quotes. <laughs> the, first, the, the first area is around sports is a product built on data. I just love that concept. Even if the data is flawed or not necessarily showing what we think it's showing, I, I, that, is, that really resonates in so many different ways. And I think we're starting to see that application of data to all parts of life increasingly as more information is available, but sports has always kind of been based on that. But this concept that he then kind of went into where the world is draining, drowning in, da in data, but starving in insights. I'll be honest, like to me, that's so much of what Kager is about. So it really, that really resonated for me in terms of quotes. We talk about the application of data to drive insights. Like that's right. You can get all the data in a good place, but if you can't then say, okay, so what? What are we gonna do with it? You know, what's, what's the point? And so just the way that he thinks and how early he was to adopting analytics was really powerful. That was my first point. Yeah, I'd say like big thing to me is his, his lead in. And I even said print it and put it on the homepage of MIT because look, people think of data and analysis as a separate thing sometimes. And what it really is, is how are we dealing with reality and truth to make the best decisions. And unfortunately, as we've seen, you know, recently in the world and, you know, people, people often are like not sitting on reality and the truth when they're making decisions. Uh, and that's some combination of their own fault and others faults that are delivering that, uh, that reality who don't have, don't have incentives to deliver reality versus things that are sensationalized or, um, you know, you know, clickable essentially. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I loved his opening, uh, opening remarks, which were clearly unplanned and just off the cuff and he lives it. You can yeah. Tell. To be a leader, he's really an inspiration as a leader to be always looking for insights from others and not to think he knows everything and knows everything. And, um, so that was powerful. Uh, to recognize his own limitations. So super smart approach. The second component, which we talked about for a while, he kind of mentioned it, but this triangulation of who the player is. So the first is obviously the player health and the different aspects, which you know we're, we've talked a lot about at the Sloan Conference before and we'll continue. Obviously, we're going to have a mental health panel specifically this year at the conference. The second is on that triangulation of the, of the player, the player health, the player development that's obviously come up a number of times during the podcast. And then lastly, he really brought, I thought, a new component that I think we've talked about, but we haven't really hit on, which is the EQ. And to me, that really resonated with some of the challenges for scouting for this year, which is some of that EQ is seeing how they engage with their teammates, seeing their behaviors off the court, um, recognizing whether or not they're a cultural fit. But I think just the way that he is thinking about that, potentially presenting that to the, the athletes that they represent to help them with their decisioning was just really, really powerful. And even to hear how you think about approaching and have a similar kind of mindset to, to 
I guess you call it selling free agents to come to come to where you are. It just it, it resonated for me. Yeah, he gave away our free agent pitch secret sauce there. I didn't like that. So <laughs> what you're saying is it's not like it's that secret. Like, yeah, we we spend a lot of time in our pitches on um, how the organization they're joining will help make them successful. And generally that ties back to most of the top free agents to winning. Like they're worried about their correctly worried about their legacy and how people view them. And that, that ties back to winning more than anything else. So what you're saying is it's not the Etch-a-Sketch? <laughs> For some, the Etch-a-Sketch is, would have been the key actually. The, the third kind of thing that he talked about that I thought was very powerful because he has this analytic slant and we we've talked a lot about the history and when things have been done a certain way for a long time, the challenges of it and how he is pulling his perspective and applying it to LA 2028. We only got that really great example. I'm sure there's many more and there's so much more time until the Olympics for them to, to impact it. But the fact that they're actually thinking about scheduling based on when the uh, fans can watch the game and it's in their time zone. I mean, as a small example, I'm aware of some other things that they're doing, which will really help propel the Olympic movement forward. But it, it just, I, I feel very confident after that discussion, how successful LA 2028 will be not only for the United States, but more broadly for sports and its impact across the world. Well, you know, I'm a huge Olympics guy on the, on the board of the Olympics. And so I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty pumped for, for LA 2028 and Casey and the whole group that has been assembled. So Daryl, this is the end of season one. What, what? <laughs> season one. I thought we were getting renewed. <laughs> I don't know. We need our fans to tell us if it was worthwhile. All right. No, that's fun. Uh, that's been fun. Th thanks to Jason and Lance. Yeah. And thanks, everyone. And hopefully this is a we'll, we'll have some stuff at the conference around uh, some of the learnings throughout the podcast. And we'll bring back some of our favorite guests for a broader discussion. So thanks, Daryl. This has been fun. Thank you to the MIT Sloan students, especially Andrew Lynn and Maggie Riddle. Thank you to our listeners. Hope you had fun. Thank you, Oracle. In sports, as well as business, analytics drive the actions you need to succeed. Oracle Analytics provides one of the most comprehensive AI-powered analytic capabilities for both business and IT. When you're ready for peak performance, it's Oracle Analytics for the win. If you enjoy this podcast, please submit questions, comments, or future topic ideas to trashtalking at sloansportsconference.com. Is it data, or data, or data, or data?